Welcome. Welcome, everyone, to Casa Live. It, I feel like it's been a lifetime since we've been here. We did have some time off, but we're here. We're back. We're doing the thing. Alex, are you ready for a show? I'm, I'm ready for the show. Me too, man. Me too. I'm so, I'm so excited about our guest today. Um, Alex, I know, has some uh, legislation to talk about, which we'll, we'll do at the end of the show. Uh, Alex will give us a rundown of what's going on. Uh, as, as far as things we need to keep our eyes and ears on. But welcome, everybody. I see a whole bunch of familiar faces in the chat. Mr. Addy Tooney is here. James Adrian is here. Janine, welcome. Mark Sliss is with us today. Peggy, welcome, everybody. Welcome. Uh, I'm going to do my best during the stream to kind of run the back end as well, you guys. So I'm going to try to star your comments and questions. We'll try to pull them up during chat, stuff like that. So I'm going to kind of do a little double duty here today. Kristen is not with us today. She's off enjoying her weekend. We gave her the day off. So uh, so welcome, everybody. Let's get into it. If Alex is ready, then we will bring our guest on and get into the meat and potatoes of today's episode. I will say, uh, for those who are curious about what legislation I'll bring up at the end, uh, Cook County, Illinois, uh, we've got Vermont, Maine, uh, and I believe, uh, well, uh, Vermont, Maine, Louisiana, and maybe some, I think some sound good sounding news out of South Carolina. So Ooh, uh, we we'll, have good we'll, news today. A little bit. Uh, depends okay, on we'll how you feel about bit. it. We'll it's, one of those, it's a little nuanced. So, um, but uh, other than that, um, we can, we can get into it. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Are you guys ready for the, we still haven't adjusted the volume on it. Super loud bumper. Yeah. <laughs> All right, let's do the thing. Welcome, Clive, to Casa Live. I've been waiting to say that just because it rhymes. <laughs> A great pleasure to be here. Great yes, pleasure. Yes, welcome back. Thank welcome you. back. Uh, really quick, before we get into the, today's topic, I'm sure everybody in chat and most folks who are, are watching on the replay, again, welcome, replay crew. Sorry, I didn't say hi to you at the beginning. Um, who you are, what you do, real brief kind of rundown about your existence here, and then uh, we'll get okay. right into this. Well, I've been, uh, I've been in the tobacco harm reduction space since about uh, 1998, uh, when I was originally, uh, I started as a director of action on smoking and health in the UK in 1997. Um, and I was basically a, a tobacco control activist um, then uh, till about 2003. Then I left uh, and became a civil servant um, working uh, for the British government, for Tony Blair, uh, for the UN in Sudan and a few other things. Um, and then came back, set up my own consultancy in sustainability and public health, uh, which, uh, you know, I, I used to make a living. Uh, but I also uh, spent quite a lot of time um, on the tobacco harm reduction brief because I had hoped when I was the director of ASH that I would never return to this field because it would all sort of sort itself out and, you know, sort of could pursue other interests. But, man, it is so infuriating. Uh, I... <laughs> I cannot leave it alone. There, there is an enormous public health win uh, waiting to be taken, potentially hundreds of millions of lives in play. If you, if you take the projections of the number of people worldwide who would die from smoking over the next century. And for some reason, all the people who are in favor of doing the who should be in favor of doing the right thing are very aggressively doing the wrong thing. Um, and, you know, I have to say it is ex totally exasperating. So I, I've sort of dedicated myself to this cause. Um, I make money here and there. I get some support from philanthropy. Um, I don't take money from tobacco or, or vaping companies. I sort of make my way through all of this. Um, but it's a cause uh, and I'm, I'm sort of locked on really. Uh, uh, feel very strongly about it, feel very strongly about all the terrible things that are being done to vapors and vaping businesses in the United States. Um, but taking it to another level, there's what the WHO gets up to worldwide. So the, these things very much on my, uh, on my mind. I'm very proud in some ways of what we've achieved in the United Kingdom, of a very solid consensus around tobacco harm reduction from the activist groups, consumer groups, 
academics, not all of them, of course, there's some crazies as well, but for the most part, the sensible people all basically agree. Um, our equivalent of the FDA and the CDC are basically on side. Um, and I think we're making real progress and hopefully we'll be an example to the world over the next, um, you know, five or 10 years or so. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm, I'm just so happy that you're infuriated this much to sit around in this field because oh my God, folks I like do. you are are uh are are just you know a necessity well, a necessity in all of this but uh but just just the 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 energy for all of this comes from the consumers uh, and and the small businesses in my opinion uh, that that's whenever we win anything it's because of them it's 100 percent true well, as I, I as much as I appreciate that confidence, I, we are still very much aware that uh, there are much larger forces at play here, and 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 I wish that I could point to uh, New York's state budget this year. Uh, actually, they completely eliminated uh, the section that would have banned menthol and flavors uh, in smoke-free products, uh, regardless of what FDA authorized. Um, and I do know that I, I believe one of the incumbent tobacco companies has a very powerful lobbyist in Albany. Um, so, but we did, of course, I, I think at some point uh, in um, March, uh, we were able to mobilize our members in, in New York and get a bunch of messages sent opposing that. So um, thanks for everybody who participated. And, and it, it's not, we're not the silver bullet, but it does, it does matter. Um, yeah. yeah. So, thank you for and a big thing. You know, we can't say it enough that, you know, when we talk about CASA, it's not just Alex, myself, Kristen, Jim, the board. CASA is you guys. Kasai is all of us. Kasai is 250,000 plus members across this country who together we accomplish these, these things. Or like Alex said, you know, maybe we're not the silver bullet, but we carry a lot of weight together. We do that together. Kasai is all of us. I mean, That's I'll a tell you my, my experience of this. The, the, the thing that breaks through with politicians, it doesn't always, but it should you never, you know, they never get, no, not by listening to me going on about odds ratios or showing graphs or, you know, cohort studies or anything like that. Nobody's, nobody's convinced by that. There's a, there's a, there's a location in the political brain that is tuned to, you know, less so in some American politicians, but tuned to empathy, tuned to understanding, uh, understanding how the world works through human experience, essentially. And it's that part of the political brain that gets ignited by the simple device of vapors telling their story in an authentic, genuine and original way. And the thing that groups like Casado, we've got the New Nicotine Alliance in, um, in the UK does the same thing. They create the conditions in which you can do that effectively. But in the end, so that in the end, the payload is your story it's your experience and the way that vaping or whatever actually has affected you for the better and how you feel about it that cuts through almost nothing else does in in my opinion um it, it, it's really difficult and we we had an epic victory and probably the only one in uh, in the european parliament in 2013 when the European Commission, the member states, everybody, all the activists, all the tobacco control activists, they all wanted to regulate e-cigarettes as medicines. So we're back at the early, in the early stages of these arguments about what these products are. Would have been a total disaster without any doubt. And the thing that swung it was thousands, I mean thousands of um, vapors from every member state in the EU, in every language, telling their stories and the, the, the sort of wash of authentic testimony was just impossible to ignore in the European Parliament and it turned it around. And it was an amazing thing, an amazing victory. People like me played a role by saying, well, this is the crazy thing they're about to do and this is who you should write to. And by the way, do it in the next 10 days. And that's kind of what Kassar does. Um, it might provides the intel that allows an individual to be an effective political operator. And that's an invaluable service. And if you're listening, 
get your hand in your pocket and send them some money because it's really important. <laughs> End of commercial. <laughs> yeah. Well, right. I, 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 I'll, I'll jump in here and, and get things moving along because this is a pretty good setup for ultimately what we're getting into, um, which is uh, kind of it's sort of a what's next in all of this. And I think uh, to some extent we're kind of pre-gaming this a little bit. Um, you know, we spend a lot of time focusing on specific policies that are restricting access and making these products uh, less less attractive and less accessible. Um, and uh, you know, there there is certainly we're we're not an anti-regulation type of community here. We realize that there needs to be something, but we need to find a balance. And a lot of this deals with <clears throat> the the harm associated with smoking cigarettes. Uh, and reducing that harm. But what we've seen from uh, the opponents on, in, in this debate is moving the goalpost, making this all about nicotine. And so yeah. uh, specifically, you know, reference we are referencing one of the, the an article that you wrote in April, um, which was uh, beyond tobacco harm reduction. So yeah. uh, probably you're the best person to do this. We, we've got the author here. Briefly, <laughs> could you kind of set up set the table for, for what this article is about and, and, and how we can get into this. All right. So tobacco, tobacco harm reduction is, it's an awful clunky phrase, by the way. I mean, I absolutely hate it. Uh, but it, it's a useful concept uh, in public health terms. Um, it, it, you know, basically captures the value of in public health terms of somebody switching from a high risk product to a low risk product when they uh, when they wish to use nicotine and continue using nicotine. OK, um, and it's, it's useful. It's got a lot of people in the public health community excited about it. OK, um, but that doesn't mean that is what the product is or is there for. And, and the danger is, um, if you only allow it to be that, what 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 is the value of these products, or what what status do these products have when actually people have quit smoking, or there's a generation coming up who've never smoked and don't care to smoke? And I'll give you an example of this. We've seen we've seen an incredibly dramatic decline. Uh, I'm not going to mention the the U.S. numbers. Um, in smoking amongst women, in young women, age 16 to 24, in Norway, okay? It's gone from like 17% um, smoking in that age group down to 1%, almost gone. But snooze use has gone up, okay? Uh, and it's gone up to almost 15%. So essentially, in round numbers, what, yeah, exactly, one, one type of nicotine use has displaced another, um, but there's no smoking anymore. So you can't, you can't use an argument. You can kind of use an argument, say, well, in the absence of snooze, they would have otherwise smoked. But no, one's, but no one in that age cohort is smoking, and they will never smoke. As they age, they will never smoke. And it's the same with the high school and middle school kids in the United States. They will never smoke. None of them will die of smoking-related diseases because the few that do smoke now, and it is like a like I forget the numbers, Alex, but it's like one percent or something like that, depending on how you measure it. Um, even them, even if they manage to continue smoking through young adulthood, most of them will switch to vaping before they're forty, and or will quit completely. And there will the the epic the epidemic of smoking related disease for that age cohort is over. Um, so you you say, well, okay, okay. What is this for? And I think we have to go back to basics and say people are using nicotine um, because they like it, because in the same way that they like other stimulants and other drugs. And we have to reconceptualize it. And I know this is all this sounds obvious when you say it. We have to properly reconceptualize it as a recreational stimulant that people like and get something from. Now, there's, there's a debate about what people do get from it, but it's pretty clear they do get something from it. Um, or there wouldn't be a billion people using it worldwide and smoking rates wouldn't have been around 80% at some point in some countries just in the immediate post-war period. So something is happening there. And what, what, we've, what we've got is a bunch of science that says, well, people 
people like it. it you know, hedonistic value. It, it actually feels good to use it. You know, shocking. You know, drug makes people feel good. You know, how shocked should we be by that? Revolutionary. Um, it's like sort of universal truth about good. It may not be good yeah. for them, but it doesn't mean it doesn't feel good. And then, then you've got a whole bunch of um, uh, functional benefits that people talk about. And you, you'll know more about this than me. But, you know, people say it uh, helps calm them, modulates mood, um, makes them feel less stressed and anxious, uh, helps them concentrate, improves memory and various various cognitive sort of functions and everything. So if, if, he, if some of that is true, <coughs> sorry, and others would say, well, if you've got something like ADHD, and maybe a lot of people have it diagnosed, and some people have some of it undiagnosed, then maybe it has a sort of therapeutic effect on that as well. So maybe there are perfectly good reasons, hedonistic and functional, why people choose to use nicotine. Maybe not everybody. I, I must admit, I've never used nicotine at all. I, I, I don't particularly want to. I'm not really interested in it. I'm probably not one of those that would benefit from it. Who knows? Um, but maybe there's a group, maybe around 30%. That was a number one neuroscientist quoted to me. He said that actually works for them in some way. Okay. So why don't we reconceptualize nicotine or rethink nicotine as a popular recreational stimulant that people like and wish to use and therefore the challenge is to make it available with through some sort of legitimate commerce that doesn't drive it underground and push it into some war on drugs sort of black market where where you know where everything goes wrong and everything goes bad and you know as a drug if you compare if you put it in the great hierarchy of narcotics it must be one, among one of the most benign. I mean, people don't lose their minds over it. They don't lose their jobs over it. They don't, you know, they don't start fights. Um, they don't, you know, have road accidents. Well, not, you know, unless they're distracted in some way. They don't, you know, they're not, um, it's not causing domestic violence. It's uh, not leading people to lose all control and become vulnerable or, leaving people incapable of working or anything. So in, in terms of a drug, it's pretty benign. Um, whether it has some health effects, probably, but then so does everything else. Uh, the question is, is this drug, can you make this drug available within the normal risk appetite that we have in society? Not this stupid thing that you hear from the, the antis, like it's not safe. Nothing's safe. Not even their favourite drugs are safe. You know, they, you know, if you take varenicline or something, there's a there's a list of, um, you know, potential side effects. Some of which are extremely serious. As long as you're armed, it's still counted as safe and effective in the mythology of tobacco control and pharmaceutical regulation. So nothing is ever totally safe. The question is, is it safe enough um, for the people who want to use it? And once you have the non-combustible platforms, vaping, pouches, snooze, um, heated tobacco products, you're into an order, orders of magnitude lower risk. And you start to say, well, this has to be acceptable in terms of what we're doing. So let's allow these to be made available. Let's regulate them in consumer interests, uh, not, not in the interests of or not with the attempt to try and suppress use, but in the interest of protecting consumers. And that will be the long-term sustainable basis for the nicotine industry, recreational nicotine industry, just as we're moving towards a recreational cannabis, ca cannabinoid industry. We've had an alcohol industry for many years with caffeine industry. No one asks in those worlds, is this appropriate for the protection of public health? Of course they don't, you know, it's beer. Yeah. And I, uh, one of the questions uh, that comes up and I, I had wanted to ask was, you know, is there a succinct, a succinct uh, definition of acceptable risk? Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, um, hmm, uh, I, I, I can't think of anything in which you would 
you 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 would define that, but you could you could define it with reference to. I mean, the the way we the way we tend to define uh, acceptable levels of risk is with reference to revealed preferences. So I'm being a bit sort of jargonistic here, but you say, well, what what are the other levels of risk that we're prepared to tolerate in in society for this sort of thing, you know? So um, what what are the other sort of recreational habits that we allow, uh, and what kind of risks come with them? Because they give you a they give you a kind of benchmark for what is acceptable. And of course, those risks those risk numbers are all over the place. So you know things like playing sports, horse riding, you you just wouldn't if you if you knew the numbers. Um, you know so. <laughs> So, so that's the way you that's the way you approach these things. And there's a there's a whole discipline about tolerability of risk. What sort of risk do we tolerate? Now, it's not all, it's not always the same because we we have a much lower tolerance for risks that one person inflicts on another. You know, uh, so one person's behavior if I, my behavior causes a risk to you, we don't want that risk to be very high at all. Can't can't ever be zero, but we don't want it to be very high. Risks that we take ourselves, such as, you know, base jumping uh, to think of a particularly risky thing to do or, you know, free rock climbing, horse riding, um, uh, you know, mo motorcycle racing. They're, they're, we, we take enormous personal risks in, in some ways. So it, it's, it's not a landscape that's easy to negotiate rationally because there's no rational starting point in this. But... I think you can you can say you know we are pretty well entitled to expose ourselves to to some you know to to fairly high degrees of risk through our personal behaviors the the one wrinkle in that is is that what people say well people don't choose these risks a predatory industry um hooks them when they're you know intellectually vulnerable as as teenagers um, and then turns them, you know, through some sort of, as Carl Phillips would call it, demonic possession, uh, you know, of addiction into lifelong nicotine slaves or something. Now, I basically just don't believe that model. There's, there's probably an element of truth in it somewhere. Uh, like all good, like all good lies, it's it's got some nugget of truth in there at, at its heart. But ultimately, people are using these products because. They choose to and they choose not to quit. And they choose not to quit because they're getting something from them and they don't want to summon up that energy to give up those rewards. You know, and this isn't this isn't an, un, an uncommon thing. I mean, I could quite happily say I would like to lose five kilograms. Uh, but I tell you, it, you know, I'm not addicted to food, but it would be quite it would be quite an effort to do that. It, we don't have that much sort of discipline to give up things that we actually like. So, yeah, the addiction thing plays out to some extent, but I don't think it's the main explanation. The main explanation is that people get something from it. When the harm associated with the delivery system is much lower, we should care much less as public health people, I'm saying now, uh, about what they're doing with themselves because there isn't as much harm for us in public health to fret about. Yeah, I think, and and you know, as far as uh, you know, our first experiences with nicotine or any other drug, um, you know, I, I was just sort of reminiscing to, <laughs> quietly, thinking back to when I first started smoking cigarettes. I obviously liked the effect of, of, of nicotine. I, I liked to to smoke the cigarettes, um, and I I knew just because of my what little education I was exposed to as a child. Um, that, you know, if I continued, then I would, I would become dependent or addicted. Uh, and it, it was, you know, the idea of addiction was, was challenging to me. I don't want to say frightening or scary, but I just didn't really want to kind of hand my life over to something that I didn't have any control over, but I really did enjoy smoking and, and using nicotine and, and, and continued and, and eventually qualify as addicted to cigarettes for 20 years. Um, but it, it seems to me that, 
you know, when we talk about drugs to sort of the uninitiated, if you will, the advice is go slow and listen to your body. And that's kind of a degree of education. <clears throat> I think that, you know, it, teaching young people things like that, I, I, and we can just have a, a separate conversation about, you know, where, what age that's appropriate at, um, probably as soon as they're at risk of yeah. somebody saying, hey, you want to try these drugs? Um, you know, there's a prevention uh, aspect to this, preventing young people from, from dying from drugs or alcohol. Alcohol mm. probably mm. is the most immediate threat to young people. Um, in terms of well, that's what the numbers show. I yeah. mean, the, you know, uh, uh, yeah, by far, yeah. Um, well, and, and so this and is actually now increasingly opioids, of course, but yes. And, and so this is kind of, kind of a long way to get to the, the, uh, the question. Um, first of all, I, I know that you've talked about latent demand uh, in, yeah. in some of the conferences. So I, this, this has to do with that. Um, but I, it, it's sort of in an ideal world, uh, mm. the, the groups that are easily identifiable as prohibitionist groups now in, in preparing for what I, I think is reasonable to expect of a, a wave of latent demand, not, yeah. not tsunami, but uh, I think a noticeable uptick. Um, in, in an ideal world where they are actually focused on improving public health, what could, uh, groups like campaign and truth and, and all of our body parts groups, yeah. what could they be doing to improve the situation? Well, the, 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 I mean, they don't, they don't want to improve the situation. They want to, they want to bathe in the warm glow of a moral panic. Um, that, that's what they do. That's what brings the money in. That's what gives them prestige. That's what gets them to conferences. Uh, it's it's an outrage and control movement. You have to have outrage and harm, uh, or there's nothing to control, and there's no point to them. You know, uh, if these if these products become benign, that's it for them. There's no need for them. Um, there's no coffee control. You know, the, 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 there's no coffee control conferences in you know in Florence uh, or. There's, there's no huge, you know, John Hopkins University or Bloomberg endowments uh, for the control of caffeine. And if you get to a position where these, that nicotine is understood to be a benign drug uh, because we now have uh, delivery systems of acceptable risk, that's it. It's over for them. And I have to say, I think they're all conflicted. They're conflicted because their livelihoods depend on harm. Uh, if there's no harm, there's no point to them. Um, so, and they never acknowledge that conflict. They never say, well, my professorship of tobacco science actually wouldn't exist if it wasn't for harm. And, you know, it's, it's unsurprising, therefore, that a lot of the academics and activists find that there's a lot of harm. Fancy that, because their livelihoods depend on it. Um, but I think one of, you, you mentioned latent demand, Alex, and I think this is a really interesting concept, okay, because... It's one of these things that we, again, must not get caught into um, saying it's only good if total nicotine use is going down. There is an extremely strong theoretical reason why you would expect total nicotine use to go up. Um, and that, that is this concept of latent demand. So if you, if you imagine smoking, there are characteristics of smoking that form a deterrent to smoking. The, the most obvious ones being the, the harm. You're going to get cancer and die early. Um, but there are other things to do with, um, you know, the smell, the mess, the, the bother. Then, then there's policy-induced uh, reasons that deter you from using smoking because that's the purpose of the policies. So high taxes, um, stigmatizing campaigns, uh, restrictions on where you can do it. Uh, growth warnings designed to gross you out, all that kind of thing. Okay, so those are all deterrents for, pe for people who would otherwise use nicotine. They're facing strong deterrent pressure uh, from harms, stigma, policy measures, uh, restrictions, and, uh, and, and so on. So if you remove all those, because the harms are very low. Um, there isn't the same antisocial or st stigma aspect to vaping, uh, although obviously some will try to create that. Um, there isn't the justification for the policies. The policies were only there to deal with harm, and if there's no harm, there's no justification for the 
you know, policies to re reduce harm. The, the chances are there's a lot of people who would otherwise have been deterred from using nicotine who would now wish to use it or now find themselves using it because it's a relatively benign thing to do. And therefore, you're not restricted to only those who are prepared to tolerate high levels of risk and the pressure from all the policies and the stigma and, uh, and, and all the rest of it. So I think that that is quite a large category of people, people who would have would never have smoked in the past, but would use nicotine once the harms of smoking are not going to be inflicted on them. And therefore, there is an argument to say that we should expect nicotine use to increase in some, you know, over over time. Not, I'm not saying it necessarily will, but it wouldn't be a total surprise if it did using that sort of economics 101 uh, understanding of when you've removed a bunch of costs, so the demand is going to go up. Um, and therefore, I think we have to be ready and able to discuss that and, and, and be, be willing to say, look, it doesn't matter if more people use this product, um, particularly if they want to and get something from it. That's, that's a consumer benefit. Um, because it's relatively benign. It's not actually causing all these things that we got into tobacco control uh, to deal with in the first place. Um, you know, so we, people like me got involved in tobacco control because, you know, cancer, heart disease, uh, emphysema, COPD, bronchitis, strokes, all the horrors. If you're not getting those at any appreciable scale, what's the case for being involved? Um, and, and, and that, that to me, is, is where we've got to get to with this. We've got to say, look, this is, this is heading towards a drug that looks like some, more like something between moderate alcohol consumption and caffeine use than it looks like some, you know, deadly plague, uh, you know, we call the smoking epidemic. Um, and we need to sort of recognize that that will have some inevitable consequences in who chooses to use the drug uh, because the calculus of personal benefit and detriment change when the products are much safer. <coughs> oh, excuse me. I know um, there was, you know, this, there was a lot of speculation going uh, kind of into the era we're in now with the legalization of cannabis uh, that there would be this massive uptick in cannabis use uh, among the population of people who weren't previously using cannabis. Um, but I also, I've read a lot that there's, there's kind of, I guess it's really kind of a, a blurry image that we're getting right now because it seems like there's an uptick, but it also is plausible that we're seeing an uptick about people who are just more honest about it because it's legal as to people who were before saying, no, I, you know, I didn't use it when it was legal and whatnot. Um, but I, I, you know, I agree. I think that it's, it's, there's a lane demand and I think that we probably would see an uptick. Um, but you would also probably see the, a similar pattern in people who, uh, like with any drug would pick up, uh, nicotine use and then go on to, like we talked about earlier, uh, say, Hey, you know, this doesn't benefit me. I'm not getting any use out of it. I gave it a whirl. I'm moving on with my life. I think all of those things are, are pause. I would, I can't wait to see what the future holds and what numbers and stuff we're going to see yeah. from, you know, something like this, but. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there's there's definitely a latent demand. There's so many deterrents now. You know, you can't spend 20 minutes watching TV without being told that nicotine's going to kill you by puppets on a couch here in, in America. So, yeah. Well, I, I I I think we should always keep in mind the you know the the, the drugs of the public health elite. Um, you know, alcohol, uh, uh, caffeine in the morning and alcohol in the in the evening. I mean, if you go to a tobacco control conference, it's not like anybody's holding back. I mean, people are knocking back the wine. You know, the people are sure the place. It's not yeah. it's not, you know, if you look at the standards by which we 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 judge alcohol, I, I really I mean, I've got good, good friends in public health and I'm not going to be rude about all of it and all the time. But, you know, I was, I was talking to uh, one of the sort of top people in the UK uh, public health community we're over dinner and she's saying you know um well hopefully you know once people have, once people have uh, quit smoking they'll move on and, and, and quit vaping i'm like we are here 
both having a glass of red wine. Why, why, why do you see abstinence as the optimum end goal when we are both perfectly happily, no, no one, you know, we don't feel we're doing anything sort of, you know, morally disgraceful or, you know, uh, we're, not, we're not doing any uh, kind of outlandish behavior here. We're just having a glass of red wine, but we are consuming a drug and none of us are campaigning to get us down, you know, to zero alcohol. I mean, there's a few crazies who do that, but for the most part, we're quite happy having a glass of alcohol with our dinner, um, a glass of wine with our dinner. Why not? So it, we seem to impose incredibly weird double standards when it comes yeah. to the recreational stimulant, particularly in tobacco control, the recreational stimulants that they don't particularly like compared to the ones that they consume in enormous quantities at um, tobacco control conferences. We just, I think, just need to, every time somebody says something about nicotine, we have to think, well, how do we handle that with, with drugs, uh, with, with alcohol? We don't. When somebody brings out a new craft beer, you know, the FDA doesn't pop up and say, is this appropriate for the protection of public health? Of course it doesn't. It's beer. It's not intended to be appropriate for the protection of public health. It's intended to be enjoyable. And, yeah. you know, we need to get into that sort of mindset with uh, the safer forms of nicotine. The reason to be involved in the nicotine industry is the harms associated with smoking, not the harms associated with a relatively benign drug. Sure. Yeah. I, I had to, one more kind of tie in with, with cannabis <clears throat> in that, um, you know, one of the, one of the bigger fights uh, and, and forgive me for not having followed this to a T, but I, and I think we're still debating at the federal level in the United States, getting cannabis descheduled uh, as a schedule one drug. Uh, and, and what happens when, when that descheduling occurs is more funding is available for research and we can actually get into, you know, right now, I'm sure there is some research out there, but um, when you are reading about a particular strain, you have user-informed uh, uh, attributes to each particular strain. This is uplifting, this will re relax you, or, or whatever. Um, but that's not, we don't really have the science there. So I, 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 I promise I am tying this to nicotine. Uh, as that sort of federal designation changes and we see more research into cannabis, I, I would hope, or, or in the, the question here is, do you foresee, as we start having this conversation about nicotine being useful and desirable and used by maybe 20 to 30 percent of the population, we can actually have more funding for actual research looking at how people can use nicotine to benefit their lives. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot to say there. Like, so the first thing, the whole... The, most problems with drugs are not caused by drugs, they're caused by prohibitions. Let's just let's just be clear about that, okay? Um, most prohibitions are not a barrier to accessing drugs. And one of my favorite statistics uh, from the US monitoring the future data is that um, past 30 day, uh, 12th grade, past 30 day cannabis use uh, in the United States has been um, at or above 20% for the last 25 years. Uh, in, in other words, at a level that was sufficient to trigger uh, a potty-filling moral panic uh, in, the, in, the, in the United States when it was vaping, when it was nicotine, okay? Daily use around 5% for the past 25 years, even though these products have been like basically illegal at federal level and illegal at state level for most of that 25 years. Um, it hasn't been a barrier to people using cannabis at, at higher levels than the kids were using nicotine or around the same levels they were using nicotine. So prohibition doesn't really achieve very much, but it does cause a whole lot of harms associated with enforcement. The kind of thing you're mentioning uh, about the, 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 the way it, prevents any sort of scientific studies being done. It's I mean, one of the reasons Ivali was such a gigantic mess is the stigma, and, and actually not, it's not even stigma, it's a material risk with uh, declaring honestly that you've been using THC. Who wants that on your medical record 
when it can get you in trouble with, you know, the police, an employer, a school, a college. It can stop you getting visas, um, it, it, you know, uh, and get you in trouble with your parents. So it, it's like it just distorts everything. But at the same time, we've learned the lessons about prohibition in the illicit drug wars slowly, a, a glacially slow pace. We are learning those lessons. We're unlearning them and doing the opposite and moving to a more prohibitionist approach in uh, the tobacco and nicotine field with, you know, um, uh, de facto bans on, on flavor, actual bans or de facto bans, actual bans at state level, de facto bans at, um, at, at, at federal level. Um, we've got, you know, low nicotine cigarette regulations and menthol bans on the cigarette side. It's like, come on, who has processed what prohibitions actually mean? They don't always work out exactly what you what you what you're intending to to achieve. On to the other point you're making, and I think this is this is really important. Um, there are there are really two types of regulation and two types of research, and I think this is a useful division to think of in terms of regulation. So the the, the, the valuable regulation and the things that Casar members should be in favour of are essentially consumer protection measures. Um, so they're designed to, you know, protect you, the consumer, from harm, um, and they're designed to make sure you get what you pay for, uh, and that if it doesn't work or something goes wrong, uh, you can get your money back. Uh, it, it, it is as described on the packaging, and uh, you know, basically, you have recourse. Uh, okay, um, you, you know, most people would say yes, they would like electrical, thermal, mechanical, and chemical safety. They don't want you know plutonium swilling around in the liquid. They don't want to get electric shocks, be catch fire, have things explode on them. Uh, they don't want to get burns. Blah blah blah. So. And there's a whole bunch of regulatory things that uh, a decent regulator could do. FDA, of course, because it has grandiose ideas about regulation, hasn't really done any of the useful things. The idea that we still have battery fires, come on. You know, that is a problem that should have been solved years ago with regulation. So that's the good, that's good regulation. The bad regulation is where, uh, it's not all bad, but you know, stick with it for a moment, is where you're trying to change behavior to stop people using the product. So you're trying to make it less appealing or you're you're trying to make it less effective or less enjoyable to use or you're, you know, so you're controlling the nicotine levels or you're banning, you're banning sort of things that would make good innovations like the inclusion of salts uh, in, in nicotine liquids or you're, um, you know, you're, you're in some of the ideas they now have, you're trying to limit the flux, the flow of nicotine past a certain point uh, in, in the product, or you're making it harder to breathe, uh, or you have to put more effort in to get the desi desired hit that you want. Those, those are things that are designed, they're sort of, the concept is that they're, they're protecting you at the population level. But for the most part, they're not really. They're, what they're doing is just making the demand go somewhere else into, you know, uh, black markets, workarounds, um, uh, you know, DIY type things. So they don't really work. But they, what they do is they interfere with sort of legitimate commercial commerce and tend to push normal vaping um, things that people want to do into a much grayer or gray gray market or black market, which is not a desirable thing to do. So that's how I would differentiate. And I would also say that the science is differentiated roughly around similar poles. Um, you get some great science that is done looking, you know, I mean, we see a lot of this in the UK, for example, what does it take to help mental, you know, people with mental health conditions stop smoking and take up vaping? What are they afraid of? What do they believe? What is it about the products that doesn't work? What's the economic, the, at a micro level, what's the economic transaction look like? What happens if you can't afford the cost of a device up front, but overall 
you'd be much better off if you switched to vaping. You know, those are the sort of interesting questions about how you get something to work um, and, you know, how you get it to work better. And there's obviously you've got the research in the companies or how you make better products. Public sector research should be, well, how do you get better products into the hands of people who would otherwise be smoking? And then how do you regulate the industry on a sustainable basis? So that's sort of how I think about it. But a lot of this stuff, you know, flavor bans, nicotine caps, uh, power limits, you know, it's like you're just blundering around in a landscape of consumer behaviors you don't understand, and you'll end up with unintended consequences and workarounds. And that's basically what we're seeing. Yeah. <clears throat> and I, I did want to... Um... I guess there's, you know, there's another level, of course, to the regulations in the United States. I'm sure that, you know, other parts of the world, it's not terribly different. But one of the things that we know for sure is, um, you know, our Tobacco Control Act was negotiated between uh, the antis and the tobacco companies. Um, and I did just really this this is a completely separate article, but I, I think we've kind of slid into this a little bit. Um, you had written about um, R.J. Reynolds. Uh, sending uh, nasty grams to uh, small mom and pop shops and, and small manufacturers in the United States. Um, and when we had you on uh, a, almost a year ago, um, one of the things that you sort of pointed to was the abuse of regulation to gain market advantage. Um, and mm -hmm. and I, 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 I don't quite know how to approach this uh, no. collegially or politely or, or anything else, but um, you know, this is a big deal. And a lot of our, you know, some of our yeah. members own shops, work in shops for sure. Uh, and, and they've seen these letters. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, is, is this simply a matter of, uh, of a tobacco company being a responsible regulated industry stakeholder? Or are they basically just kind of carrying out the rest of the plan using uh, yeah. the regulations as leverage to gain market share? I mean, it's a, it's a tricky issue here, okay? Yeah. Let me be, let me, I'm going to preface everything I say with the blame lies with the FDA for this, okay? Um, so if you, if you, the world, the world from Reynolds is, look, we complied with all the regulation. We spent a bazillion dollars getting a PMTA. Um, we've done everything we've been told to do by the FDA, uh, our investors expect some return on the investment that we've made, yet we're being undercut by products that haven't gone through that process and, uh, you know, uh, uh, haven't even tried to go through that process. So in order, you know, fiduciary duty, we have to wade in and make sure that we have the competitive advantage that our investors expect uh, and, and we fought tooth and nail to get through through. FDA. That's the world as they see it. And that's not an unreasonable view. Uh, if, if, you, if you're sitting in the headquarters of Reynolds or BAT in London and you, you're, you're thinking, well, hang on, we've done all this and we're still getting creamed in the marketplace and we can't charge a premium for our, you know, appropriate for the protection of public health product. The problem, of course, is that that is, that is the, you know, if you like, that that is the the product of an upstream dysfunctional process, which has done two things, create enormous barriers to entry that only companies like Reynolds can uh, overcome, um, and uh, no sensible uh, path for market for most of the legitimate businesses that are in the marketplace serving their customers with the products that they've always served them with, um, new products that they'd like to serve them with, um, and which work perfectly well for public health and for consumer preferences. So F FDA has so badly distorted this market, you end up with Reynolds having the incentive to do that sort of thing. Now, my, my take uh, on this is that Reynolds should not be um, putting its jackboot on the uh, on the on the neck of uh, small businesses, it should if it wants to do something in this space, it should be directing its fire at FDA and talking to FDA about a sensible enforcement regime. Given the mess that FDA has created, in in which it it takes you know 
the, the judgments here should be with FDA about enforcement, not with Reynolds. It should be them um, tackling, tackling the, you know, it should be like a, almost a merit order of enforcement. So, you know, go, af go after the reckless players. Go, out, go after the products that have never even come within sending an application in. Uh, go, go after the, the frivolous applications. Um, you know, do something like that. But don't, for heaven's sake, start, you know, try, trying to restrict the market to only those products that have uh, a PMTA because, you know, that, that, will, that will cause uh, a, a, just a total disaster. So my advice to, to them, if they're listening, hello Reynolds, is focus your formidable fire on FDA and its enforcement practices. Um, don't focus your formidable fire on you know tiny little shops trying to make a business by you know selling life-saving products to customers that they've had for many years because that's a disgusting thing to do yeah yeah i know that's a that's a it's a pretty tough needle to thread i'm sure for for a it lot is. of folks uh you know at the top here and and um and i yeah, I, it's uh, that was that was the answer. I think <laughs> we were all looking well, for. I so. mean, it's a difficult one because yeah, the the, the, re, the the real argument is don't start from here. Uh, don't don't get into this appalling mess. Have a pragmatic route to market for you know uh, you know several thousand products. I mean, if you go if you look at the markets in. If you look at the uh, registries that we have in the European Union and UK, you'll find, you know, typical market will have 10 to 12,000 products on it. Um, you know, nobody's, you know, more in the larger kind of, I think it's like 40,000 in Germany or something. Nobody's losing their minds over that. Um, no, you know, there's not, there's not some outbreak. We didn't have Ivali. There wasn't some outbreak of awfulness in Europe because there are 40,000 products to choose from. Um, it, it, you know, it all works pretty well. Uh, they're notified rather than authorized, and then they take action if something goes wrong. It's a it's a workable alternative system. Um, FDA cannot do exactly what we do in the European Union, but it could do more to approximate it if it interpreted its duties under the Tobacco Control Act more rationally. Doesn't mean that would be accepted in you know states or municipalities, of course, but. That would be a start. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, state and municipal uh, legislators, uh, bodies of decision making are um, uh, laboratories for, for policy that can be scaled up. So certainly they could be uh, they, there is there is opportunity there. Oh, um, and I, I, I wish that was actually true, Alex, because if, if they were if they were laboratories, they'd look at the San Francisco flavor ban and say, well, that's it. We're not doing any more flavor bans. So it's not a laboratory in the. It's not a laboratory in the sense that we understand it, where you experiment with something, you find out what the results are, and then you act accordingly. It's something where you 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 sort of blast through, um, you know, pointing in one and one only direction and say, look, we've done it here. We now need to do it everywhere else without without actually bothering to examine the consequences. Yeah, well, I I would absolutely agree uh, with regard to tobacco for sure. That that has been uh, that line has been abused, uh, and mm. um, yeah, but um, and and I, I to tee up perhaps a, a further a future conversation with you. Um, I know that as conferences are, are going on, we're going to e Sig Summit uh, next next week or two weeks from now. Um, and, and I suspect enforcement is, it has been at the top of a lot of people's, uh, panels, uh, and panel discussions, agendas, and so on. Um, and so hopefully we'll, we'll, we may have another opportunity to talk about, um, how to best, uh, influence FDA and other regulators about what they can do with enforcement. Yeah, yeah. Um, we, we've got, um, a, a, a bunch of, uh, a bunch of academics and experts who, uh, you know, affiliated with, uh, Tom Miller, attorney general, uh, former attorney general now of, of Iowa. Um, we've got a, we've got a big letter. It's our sort of like response, uh, to the Regan Udall, uh, evaluation of the center for tobacco products. And we're going to be launching that in that week. And hopefully, uh, a lot in the vaping community will find a lot to like 
when that comes out. So keep your eye out for that. We're hoping to get that into the public domain on the 15th of May, just before the E6 Summit and the uh, FDLI conference, which is the same week in Washington. And I will be in um, Washington, D.C. for both of those. Uh, so I'm looking forward to meeting uh, more, more American friends uh, at, at those meetings. But that, I think, will uh, – I think people will feel that that is a good if, – if, if, if Regan Udall's main finding uh, on FDA was that there was a void where strategy should be. And what we have attempted to do, uh, you know, I think there's 23 people have signed up to this now, uh, is fill that void with a coherent strategy, which is a development of the thing that they uh, brought out in 2017, but I would say was better. Yeah, for sure. I look forward to reading that on my train ride down to DC. Yeah. So, okay, um, cool. So uh, we've kept you about for an hour uh, and we will ask you to stick around just a little bit longer so we can download all the video from this and make, uh, you know, fun clips and so on. Sure. And I will keep, uh, first of all, thank you again for coming on the show. Uh, and I'm moving swiftly along into the very, very, very brief uh, legislative rundown, which I promise you I'm going to keep to five minutes. Awesome. I'll hit the bumper in just a second. The only I jotted down something really quick, and I just want to throw it out there. Earlier, Alex, you had mentioned uh, research in drugs, particularly in cannabis, mm -hmm. uh, and the de decriminalization of cannabis, opening those doors, which has been a huge thing, not only for cannabis, but drugs across the board. Uh, mm -hmm. Last year, the year before, uh, they did pass uh, as, as part of, I believe, the federal budget alongside a, a number of opening doors to harm reduction. Uh, new pathways for cannabis research to be done regardless of the scheduling of cannabis that was part of that so those doors have opened those pathways nice. have opened up immensely but not to the point of actually where decriminalization would bring us i just did i wanted to throw that out there because it's not yeah. quite like it was even five years ago uh it's gotten much better but still we're not quite where we should be um just to throw that into the mix but yeah i'm gonna hit the bumper so we can talk about other things Still pretty difficult to do population studies, you know, go out and survey people sure. and find yeah. out what they're actually yeah. doing in, in practice. But yeah, no, there's I definitely just, some I, I just wanted to mention that, yeah, we are, we did get a little bit further in the, the last few years as far as research being done um, around cannabis in particular. But I'm going to run this bumper so we can get into some legislation. I don't know if that video was cut short and weird for everybody else, but it was for me. Uh, so Alex. For me. <clears throat> so really, really quickly, I'm not even going to do the screen share because I, I want to make sure Clive gets on with his evening. Uh, and, and this is very brief. Um, so the, the, the bad news up front um, for Vermont and Maine, we have flavor ban legislation that appears to be moving forward. Um, we have our call to action up for Vermont. So if you live in Vermont, Go to the Vermont State page. You can find it under uh, Get Involved uh, and uh, look for S18. Uh, it has crossed over from the Senate to the House. And I've been checking the tracking every day and I missed this. Uh, there was, it sounds like a committee hearing. Uh, apparently the only uh, people who knew about it were R Street, uh, which is which is good, fine by me. Uh, they tend to be on our side on this one. Um, but if you live in Vermont, uh, definitely could use some uh, some contacts with your lawmakers and urge them to oppose a flavor ban. This is like what we've seen uh, in other parts of New England and around the country, an indiscriminate ban on flavors, regardless of FDA authorization. Uh, similar bill in Maine, which I don't think I have an, a call to action up for yet. This was uh, dropped a, a week or two ago, uh, LD 1215. Uh, and so that is moving forward. Uh, the... Uh, what was the third? Oh, uh, Louisiana uh, is looking at a tax. It started as a five cent per milliliter tax, which for Casas purposes is still unacceptable, albeit low. Uh, and there is an amendment uh, to raise that to a 30 cent per milliliter tax in Louisiana, of all places. Uh, so uh, if you're in Louisiana, take action before this gets any worse uh, and urge your lawmakers to oppose that tax. For the good news to round things out, um, oh, I, sorry, uh, Cook County, Illinois, uh, I believe, is looking at a flavor ban. Uh, I'll be working on that to get out early next week. Um, Cook County, of course, it, it, it's Illinois. 
uh, which is, you know, at least the closer you get to Chicago, the more hostile they are to tobacco harm reduction. Um, so uh, any involvement anybody in, in Cook County can can provide, that would be great. And we'll get that call to action up early next week. Um, so for the good news, uh, as already mentioned, uh, the the uh, flavor ban in New York state budget has been removed. Part It was part O. The entire thing was taken out. It had been amended through the process to kind of uh, it's the usual suspects, of course, the cigarette companies, the cigar makers uh, managed to get things exempted or taken out, uh, leaving vapor to kind of twist in the wind. Uh, but uh, there was a lot of engagement from a lot of uh, leaders from, from the black community uh, and other you know, social justice folks uh, in hammering home what we have been discussing here and what we've known for decades, that prohibition is actually causing more harm than it's than it's doing towards reducing use of any product. Um, and so uh, hopefully that sticks in the minds of, of folks in Albany, but we'll see. Uh, this is New York after all. <clears throat> um, and the last bit of good news, which tends to be a, a controversial bit, um, is uh, South Carolina's preemption bill uh, has moved forward. I, I can't remember if it's on its way to the governor's desk or if it has just passed uh, one of the houses, uh, but this would restrict tobacco regulations uh, to state level. Uh, and, and it would not allow, uh, and I'm not sure how retroactive this is, uh, undoing things like smoking bans at, at the municipal level, um, but uh, it, it would keep it at the state level. Uh, and I mentioned this several times and I, I, I have actually had a hard time finding it, but Carl Phillips actually wrote on his blog many, many years ago uh, about why preemption in tobacco was the best way to go, ideally at the federal level and, and not having states uh, impose their own, own restrictions. Um, it is much better for public health to have something more uniform. Uh, and of course, uh, in theory anyway, uh, the Food and Drug Administration has a lot more resources in terms of researching what uh, the policies uh, and policy outcomes uh, should be. Uh, this is not something that we find that states and, and cities have access to. So um, with that, that's the quick run rundown. If you heard your state mentioned, that's what's going on uh, and be on the lookout for stuff to come out next week. And with that, Logan, do you want to, you want to say all the things and then we can Ooh, let, I get know. to do the spiel. The other thing I was going to say is when you talk about preemption or whatever, we've discussed this before is when we end up with this weird little patchwork, whether it's within a state or states near each other of different regulation here and there, whatever, um, anti-groups like campaign for tobacco free kids use that as reasoning to say, well, look, we've done it here. We've done it here. We've done it here. Why don't we just do it across the board? Uh, and it, it just makes that argument. It makes that, that that fight that much more difficult uh, and easier for them to justify moving forward with more bands or larger bands or whatnot and what have you. So, yeah, absolutely. Anyways, that's it this week, you guys. We did it. We made it through. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. And thank you, Replay Crew, to everybody who just tuned in for the whole thing. You guys are fantastic. Thank you, Clive, uh, in particular, for joining us and taking the time out of the day for helping uh, educate all of us about rethinking nicotine and the potential future that we have here. Um, thank you just so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you, everybody, great. for tuning in. Uh, if you are not yet a member of CASA, you're just doing everything wrong. You've done everything wrong up to this point in your life. No, I'm just kidding. Head over to CASA.org, though, and become a member today. It's absolutely free. Uh, check out our testimonies page. You know, we talked about uh, the power of your story about telling your truth, talking about these products, your personal experience with these products, uh, and how important that is. Uh, we have a, a collection of over 13,000 testimonies on our page, and it's still not nearly enough. So add yours. Go share your story. It's the most powerful thing that we have. Um, on top of that, if you have uh, if you're on Facebook as well, uh, we have state pages available all over Facebook. If you live somewhere within or, you know, part of a, a territory of the United States, if you're if you're part of America, we have a, a page for that for you. Uh, it's a great way to get involved uh, within your state, within different municipalities, within your state. Check out our merch page. Uh, our fantastic president of the board, Danielle Jones, has so many awesome designs. You get to be a walking billboard of, of tobacco harm reduction. Um, and if you're inclined to donate, that always helps as well. I think we're back in two weeks. Same time, same place, as far as I know. I don't know what's on the agenda yet. I don't even know if I'll be here, but we're going to be here in two weeks. Um, same time, same place. I think that's the spiel. That's the spiel. 
Cool. I did it. We did it. We did it, you guys. We did it. Go team. Go Kasa. Be excellent to each other. Enjoy the rest of your weekend. We'll see you next time. Thank you, everybody.